Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 417th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're broadcasting across the world in this our ninth year from our studio on the shores of Sydney Harbour. I'm overlooking the Harbour Bridge, the Sydney Opera House. It's a beautiful day and the harbour's glistening, stacks of boats out on the water. It's a really magnificent sight. I gave a present to the Entertainment Technology Conference and it was terrific. We had a lot of fun. I'd also like to give a shout out to my son, Hunter, who's a Googler up there in Silicon Valley. And it's his birthday today, so happy birthday, mate. We're thinking of you. Now, in Los Angeles, we have a lot of homeless people, as there are here in Sydney and in most other major cities around the world. And, you know, the average house takes anywhere from four months to 12 months to build, and you've got to purchase the land and get the design done, and that costs you a fortune. Arranging a builder and paying the contracts contractors and the architects and and you have about 30 years of debt. Now in the wake of home ownership falling and savvy innovators dreaming up new living solutions, there's now actually another way. You can order a house online and get it delivered to your door in the time that it takes to receive chocolate magnums from your supermarket. Amazon sells a do-it-yourself house for less than 20 grand and it takes two days to build, and they tell me that any idiot can build it. Of course, if I built it, it looked like Picasso built it, but nevertheless. But the finished house is less than 500 square feet. But it's amazing just how stylish and livable they can be, and 500 square feet doesn't sound like much. But the way they build these things, they're surprisingly comfortable. And with a more minimalist outlook of a lot of people and uh, people beginning to focus less on what they covet and more on what they genuinely want to have to make them happy. Tiny homes can be carted around on wheels on the back of cars or in trailers. You can let residents travel and see their country and move around with great mobility. This is why... Snowbirds in the US and grey nomads in other parts of the world, which are retiree travellers that take to RVs and drive around the country. I've never been able to work out why people do it, but nevertheless, they seem to love it. A lot of people now take their tiny homes on the back of their, um, their SUVs. To focus on lifestyle and to reconnect with nature and adventure, tiny homes might just be the go. It could also be a growing niche for older and younger ends of the market. You know, you have an issue when your parents get older and you've got a home and not enough room in the home where you don't want to be falling over each other. You can get a tiny home and um, put it up in your backyard and stick the in-laws in it. You can also do the same for your 37-year-old son or daughter that's never moved out of the house. Just give them their own tiny home in the backyard. And uh, it's a great solution. 
and the hashtag van life is one of the most successful Instagram trends of all time on lifestyle in their vehicle conversions because it seems a tiny living isn't at all a downgrade. It's an upgrade to a new way of life. It's certainly a hell of a lot better than living on the street. It's an escapade of freedom and self-reliance. I think it's a pretty good idea. It's not for me, but it's a good idea. Tiny homes are cheaper, less time-consuming to build, and more practical in terms of allowing more people to fit into urban hotspots. be fantastic in, in um, San Francisco and around Silicon Valley if you could ever find any place to put them. The two-bedroom home's impractical for most average income-earning people these days. The cost of homes has just got to be ridiculous, unless you want to live in the middle of the country somewhere. Um, and particularly for the younger generation who have been effectively locked out of the property market. Now, tiny homes could be a natural progression to more compact living solutions, just like we've seen in Europe and certainly in Japan over the decades. As well, tiny homes solve multiple problems for an increasingly non-home-owning segment of the population. They're inexpensive. They're mobile. They can be driven around on a trailer or built on wheels. They're eco-friendly and they're customable. Tiny homes can also be erected in the homes of parents whose 20-somethings not ready to leave, as I mentioned before. And uh, they're still widely pretty much illegal across most of the US. I've never been able to work out why. And they're also illegal in many other first world countries because they often don't meet zoning and building standards. But cities are slowly changing their ordinances to allow the downsized dwellings and even developing entire communities. They're certainly a fantastic answer for homeless. You know, you get... Um, get a hectare of land or you know, 10 acres of land or whatever, and you can stick up a whole heap of tiny homes and put in a healthcare centre and a recreation centre and, and you've got yourself a little community where um, sounds like a good solution to the homeless problem. And prefabricated buildings are not new. Countries like Dubai are using prefabricated building facilities to build entire hospital wings. They built this giant hospital in nine days, just all prefab, pull it together. And the beauty of prefab buildings is that normally they just need a certificate that says the specifications are the code. They're not going to fall down or whatever. So think of all the business opportunities now that tiny living revolution could foster. People who are really innovative and can come up with new ways of designing all the facilities that people need in a very small space, can probably make a fortune. Modern architecture startups, specialists, flat pack furniture businesses, tiny living consultancies, artificial intelligence, tiny house builders, legal reps, tiny neighborhood co-ops, mobility, transport solution providers, there are a whole heap of people who can make a big dollar out of tiny houses. So if you want a big fortune, maybe go to tiny, tiny houses. Seems to me to be a very practical solution in this world today. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? We've now got about 1.7, 1.8 million daily subscribers. 
It takes just 30 seconds to read every day. and Sometimes it takes a minute. It takes me about two hours to write the bloody things. But nevertheless, it only takes you 30 seconds to a minute to write them. We tackle a different subject every day from advances in medicine to new apps to new technologies. We talk about Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, cryptocurrency. We talk about the whole gamut. And today's newsletter was is about um, how just six weeks ago, the co-working giant WeWork was the US's most valuable tech startup. It was worth $47 billion just six weeks ago. Today, six weeks later, the talk is about bankruptcy. So how the hell can something go from $46 billion one day to bankrupt six weeks later? Well, in today's news, we tell you about how it happened. It's a really interesting read, really interesting read. So the one media vehicle you can trust for up-to-the-date latest information is the Bob Pritchard newsletter. And to receive it, you simply go onto my website, bobpritchard.com, and subscribe. It's easy. So it takes you about 10 seconds, really. So it's bobpritchard.com and subscribe. Most people know Hooters as the restaurant of choice for, you know, spicy chicken wings, great burgers, cold beer, waitresses, and wait for it. Now you can add cutting-edge cancer drugs to the list. Can you believe it? How does Hooters and cancer drugs match up? Well, the parent company of the Hooters restaurant chain, Chanticleer Holdings, that lists on the NASDAQ exchange under the t- ticker Berg, B-U-R-G, as in Hamburger. And it's combined via reverse merger with Sonnet Biotherapeutics, which is a cancer drug developer. Now, that might seem kind of weird, but it's very expensive to list, to have an IPO and to list. It's a hell of a lot of trouble, a lot of regulatory requirements and expensive. But if you can find a company that is not doing so well, a public company that's already been through all of those regulatory nightmares, then you can back into that shell and um, go public without all the trouble of holding an IPO. And that's exactly what Sonnet Biotherapeutics did because the chance Clear Holdings was a really good reverse merger target. The stock was more than $35 a share, and now, because of the decline in fast food, etc., the shares are less than a buck. So it's gone from $35 to a dollar. So it needed something, it needed an injection of something to give value back to the stock. So usually, Businesses that want to reverse merger look for a a public company that's in dire straits. But in this case, Sonnet chose a large operating company that was still operating. And uh, why did the stock fall from 35 bucks to a buck? Well, there's an overall decline in the popularity of fast casual dining. And uh, 
the Hooters just doesn't have the sizzle to it that maybe it did when it started. So now the company formerly known as Hooters will have a different NASDAQ call sign. It's going by SON, S-O-N-N, instead of Berg on the NASDAQ. And the company plans to spin off its restaurant assets into another company that will be owned by the current shareholders. Now, have you heard that the police are being armed with their latest, least deadly weapon they've ever had? Virtual reality. VR is no longer a toy. Technically, it still is, but these days, scientists, doctors and military and corporate giants like Walmart are getting a lot of use out of this technology, particularly for training purposes. Now, Axon, a tech company known for creating the taser and being a leading pusher of police body cameras, is the latest major firm to jump on the immersive bandwagon. 1% of the 12 100 Americans fatally shot by police in 2019 had a mental illness. So that's about, what, 250 or 230 had a mental illness. And the focus of Axon's empathy development training is to condition police officers to ask the right questions in the right tone to better assess high-pressure situations before pulling their weapons and firing. A few months ago, Axon un unveiled a virtual program in Chicago using Oculus Go VR headsets to train first responders in scenarios involving citizens with autism and schizophrenia. And the company's latest rollout is focused on preparing officers to better assist in suicide prevention. So Axon's new training program seeks to put its trainees on both sides of the coin, the officer and the person in need. As for the future of virtual reality in law enforcement, experts believe that it's got a stack of promise, providing immersive views of body cam evidence, assisting in recruitment, or one day being utilized as therapy for officers that might be experiencing PTSD. Now my guest today in the interview just after the break is Pradeep Gol. He's an incredible guy. He spent more than 26 years in healthcare IT. He is doing a lot to assist in the improvement of America's healthcare. He's built four healthcare IT companies, and he's been at the top of Inc. 500 fastest growing company lists multiple times. Pradeep is also one of the 100 most promising entrepreneurs worldwide. He's a really good guy, and this is Bob Pritchard, and I'll be back with Pradeep in just a moment. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. 
Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore. Or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Where over the past nine years, we've given you an insight into the lives of some of the world's most interesting business people and their fascinating and exciting initiatives. We talk to the entrepreneurs behind these projects and we talk about the services that they provide. We address the challenges that they may have faced and we try to work out what it is that makes them tick. What makes these entrepreneurs special? The latest figures that I saw from Silicon Valley said that 99% of all startups now fail. So when you speak to one that's succeeding, what is it that they do that the rest of us don't do that makes them successful and others not? Now, Pradeep Gol has spent more than 26 years in healthcare IT building four healthcare IT companies, and he's been at the top of Inc. 500 fastest growing companies lists multiple times. Pradeep is also on that 100 most promising entrepreneurs worldwide that's compiled by Goldman Sachs. And in 2011, he was appointed by Governor of North Dakota to the Health Information Technology Advisory Committee to help direct statewide health record initiatives for insurers and consumers. It's always amazed me that um, you can do, we can land a man on the moon, but we can't get our healthcare records all in one place, all simple, so that you don't have to go, when you get checked into hospital, for example, you don't have to fill in the same ridiculous form 25 times. And um, from 2012 and to 2017, Pradeep was working with healthcare initiatives of two US presidents to design and build several public program solutions, including Medicaid, Medicare, social services, children's health, medical, mental health, and many other programs. He is the CEO at Solve Period Care or Solve.care. The Solve.care program uses blockchain technology as the underlying distributed ledger for coordinating care, benefits and payments between all parties in the chain of healthcare, which are patients, doctors, pharmacies, laboratories, employers, insurers and others. Hi Pradeep, welcome to the Bob Pritchard radio show. You're being heard right around the world. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. It, it It's really... A, Pradeep's in the Ukraine. So in the Ukraine, it's about 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night. So I really appreciate you speaking with me. Um, what problems are Solve.care trying to solve? What are you addressing? Bob, first, I think your statement earlier that 
it is easier to land man on the moon than to deal with some of the intractable issues of healthcare. That is undeniably true uh, for more reasons than one. Healthcare was, is a culmination of really a quarter century of learning and journey where I've had the privilege of working on many sides of healthcare from an insurance perspective, from a public program perspective, from a regulation perspective. Uh, from clinical delivery perspective, and then as a father of a child that needed a lot of, needs a lot of health care, mm. as a patient in a family perspective. And when you really come down to it, we are trying to address the fundamental realignment and necessary but missing realignment of the interests of the patient and the needs of the physician and the interests of the person who is paying for health care, the payer, be it insurance company or the employer or the government. Right. Um, in the manner that allows really for me to take better care of my kids and to deliver better health care to them while having health care be sustainable, affordable, and accessible. So it really is about rethinking the way patients, doctors, payers, and other stakeholders work together to a common objective while meeting their objective of quality of care or access to care or cost of care or all of the above. Right. So it's a lessons learned applied to we got to change things. So let's do something differently than the way we've been doing them. So what was the what was your main motivation behind establishing Solve dot Care? Is it building on so the programs you that you've de- developed in your earlier healthcare companies? Was it a an extension of those, or was it a, a totally different approach? So as you mentioned, um, you know, I've been in healthcare a long time and I've had the privilege and the really good fortune of looking at healthcare from many different angles. And I have built solutions, companies, or career in healthcare, solving the, the problems from a payer, from insurance perspective or from a hospital perspective or from an employer perspective or a government perspective. And what I found myself asking the question over the years increasingly is, how come we invest literally hundreds of millions of dollars, sometimes billions of dollars? And when we start, we have this aspiration to engage the patient, make them, give them the right information at the right time, engage the provider, the physician, the reduce cost of care while improving quality of care. And yet we always fall short. So what's the issue? And I came to believe after having built a lot of different technologies and systems that the issue lies in the way we are asking the question of how to engage the patient. Yet another website, yet another app, yet another data warehouse built by an insurance company or by a government agency does little to engage you as a parent or me as a patient. It just is not working. Sure. So solve care is in some ways an essential pivot point. Having done everything that conventional wisdom says we should do, I realized that I did all that well, and yet we didn't make the impact we want. So South Care is a response to me saying, we got to do things differently by asking different questions. And the fundamental question we have to ask is, is the patient's interest and the physician's interest and the payer slash check writer's interest truly aligned? And the answer is no. So how are we going to align them in a manner that is transparent, that is coordinated, that yields the right value to the right parties? Because one wins, the other loses, that's not going to work. We have to achieve a win-win-win model. And sure. so in very simple terms, Solve Care is a platform designed to address 
those three pillars. How do I make the patient more effective at getting well? How do I make the doctor more effective at delivering the care I need to deliver? And how do I most effectively pay for this care and ensure that I'm paying for the right care at the right amount, for the right reasons and for the right amount? That is the realignment we are pursuing uh, with the platform. One of the problems that well, a few issues that I have with healthcare um, is that you fill out the same forms over and over again, seeking the same information incessantly. I must have filled out one of those healthcare forms. Do you have diabetes? Do you have arthritis? Do you have a pigeon toes? I filled those things out a thousand times in my life. And surely with today's technology, that it, it's all totally unnecessary, isn't it? Surely, you know, we can we can come up with a system where everybody is on some form of card or whatever that gets swiped and all your medical history is all in one shot. That's got to be good for the doctor. It's got to be good for the patient. It's got to be good for insurance companies. It's surely got to be good for everybody. Yeah, it is a complex question. I mean, it seems quite simple, but the answer is yes. The answer is we need to get away from the reason you fill out the same information again and again is because you, that information is going to different systems. One system belongs to the insurance company, the other system belongs to the doctor, the third belongs to the hospital, the fourth belongs to the pharmacy, the fifth belongs to your employer, and on and on and on. And every one of them operates as if they are the center of the universe. And therefore, you have to circulate your world around them, that system. So to them, there is no memory of what you did in another system. There is no coordination. Yeah. And for many years, we've been pursuing this idea of interoperability where someday in the distant future, all these systems will talk to each other and therefore we'll have this perfectly interoperable, integrated universe where data will flow. The problem is technologically you could do it, but business interests don't allow it. So what we need to do is to move the data out of the system in the hands of the patient. And right. make it portable so that you can give it to the doctor without having to enter it into yet another form, yet another EMR or whatever, right. electronic medical record system. So exactly, empowering the patient has to be more than saying to the patient, get smarter, work harder, be intelligent, or you know, be superhuman because healthcare demands that of you. Empowering the patient means giving them the tools that they can actually use to control their information and deliver it to the right party with the right consent for the right reason, for the right duration. So in many ways, you have to get away from the back-end system model where insurance company systems don't talk to doctor systems, don't talk to hospital systems. The person that needs to have that information in their hand is the patient. Yes. So if we use the current technology, which is better than you know, a few years ago, um, certainly we have seen some advances in technology that allow me to, to put information in the hands of the patient like never before. And the, I'm not just talking about mobile phones, which are certainly very helpful. I'm talking about a secure, controlled, transparent information delivery network that I can join, publish, and consume information from. Sure. That would, which, um, you know, I am a big fan of um, blockchain uh, and cryptocurrencies for that matter, but I'm a big, big fan of blockchain. And this is where... I think blockchain can play an extraordinary role because there's, um, it's it's accessible, it can't be changed, so everybody be, can be very confident that the information that they're getting 
has not been tampered with or there's been no mistakes or whatever. So what sort of a role do you see blockchain playing in healthcare? So blockchain as a technology is very promising, but it's obviously not panacea. It will solve some very important issues, but it will not solve all. Having said that, in healthcare, an appropriate use of blockchain that we have zeroed in on is using it as a distributed ledger that allows coordination between doctor, patient, employer, insurer, government, where we can coordinate benefits, meaning what plan, insurance plan I have, what are my rights under the plan, uh, what benefits I receive, based annual wellness exam or a discount pharmacy product, or the rights to see a specialist without a referral. Those are my benefits. And if I can coordinate them on a chain that allows my doctor, my specialist, my insurance company to be in sync, I as a patient don't have to deal with all the bureaucracy anymore. I'm going to publish my need and I'm going to let the chain participants respond to my need, be it for making an appointment, be it for filling a prescription, be it for getting a referral to see a specialist, be it to report my symptoms after I went home, uh, after a surgery at the hospital, be it to... Uh, to uh, take care of my family members who are the patients and I have to coordinate their care. That coordination on a common fabric is a far, far, far better model than today where we have emails and, you know, as you mentioned, you know, uh, a million copies of the same form floating around. So yep. that's one elegant use of blockchain. The other elegant use of blockchain is monitoring and measuring the quality of care I'm getting and measuring it in a transparent way so that I am getting the care I need. My quality of my care isn't a hope and a prayer, but it, ha it can be measured against the quality of care being given to other people by other doctors. So I can create this measures and metrics where my identity can be kept completely private, but my ability to see whether I'm being given the best possible care, is a care protocol being followed? Let's say I have diabetes, Am I being treated according to the American Diabetes Association guidelines or am I not? Right. Those things become transparent at the right level of transparency without me having to compromise you know, my relationship with my doctor or my identity. And on the third side is somebody needs to get paid. When you go get care, somebody's going to pay the doctor. So that payment is today very complex. It's multi-part, multi-day, multi-week journey and the doctor can wait from the day he sees you as a patient to the day I pay him as an insurance company, 90 days, 180 days. Now, nowhere else in the world can you go to a store, buy a sweater, wear it for 180 days, and then decide you're going to pay. Right. Uh, it's, but healthcare works like that because of the, the third-party payment nature of healthcare by definition. Uh, because most payments in healthcare are not made by the patient. They're made by somebody on behalf of the patient. Sure. So that makes it a very complex third-party payment model, and that is very cumbersome, very much susceptible to abuse on both sides. Uh, I can unfairly deny payment, and you can unfairly bill me, and it's going to be very hard to reconcile. So this is, these are the issues that healthcare is unique about. When people say, health, you know, it can be rocket science, my answer is worse because the way the relationships are structured, yeah. it is very, very, people are at odds with each other all the time. And the whole objective of using blockchain effectively is to coordinate benefits, coordinate care, and coordinate payments. And if we can address any one of these three things effectively, we would have made a huge change in healthcare. 
I think the opportunity is to, to change all three. The, you mentioned cost of healthcare. Um, I know this is probably outside your purview, but why does it co- why does somewhere like Australia, for example, have um, healthcare that costs the where you can treat everything and the government pays for it? Doesn't matter what it is, the government pays for it, and yet it only costs twenty five hundred dollars a year per head. Yet in the United States, it's eighty five hundred dollars a year per head. Why does it cost three times more for healthcare here than it does in somewhere like Australia? Is that simply because in Australia you've got one payer and maybe two healthcare companies, where over here you've got a plethora of um, insurers and healthcare providers, and it's just there's, everybody's got to take their bit of a dollar along the way. Um, I mean, this is, a, this is a complex issue, and there are lots of opinions about this. But at the end of the day, I'll make one comment that I think might help some, shed some light on this. The payer, ultimately, whoever that might be, single payer or multi-payer, or, you know, um, and U.S. has, of course, many different types of payers, government, sure. commercial insurance, sure. employers. Um, they're all payers in the context of healthcare. Um, the, the issue is that payer is not actually the one who's driving costs. They're the ones who are trying to contain cost. So they're the ones writing the check. So in the end, you're not the, uh, if you are the one responsible for writing the check, you're not going to be anxious to drive the cost up. Okay. The issue here is more about utilization. The fundamental question here is, uh, and one CEO from one of the major insurance companies put it beautifully many years ago, I heard him speak and I agreed with him. He said, when we get sick, we have an expectation of unlimited care. Whatever can be done will be done to make me well, regardless of cost. Right. But the fact is that regardless of cost is an expectation. It's not deliverable. You cannot say every single situation demands unlimited care and unlimited intervention. So our challenge, both in the U.S. and really globally, it's not just the U.S., is that our expectations and our consumption of health care is growing at a speed that is far exceeding the overall economic model. Whether it's an insurance model, the premiums can keep up because the cost of insurance will grow to so high that people can't afford it. Yep. So you are trying to drive down cost of care, and, but you can deny people care. So it's a very fine balance between driving utilization and the cost of utilization down without impacting people's lives. I wouldn't want somebody to tell me my son can go see a neurologist, but it's too expensive. But the, but the fact of the matter is that if every single scenario he ends up with a neurologist instead of a primary care or pediatrician, the cost would be astronomical. So we have to find this balance between whether the patient has the tools to make the right decisions and is able to utilize to the right level the right services, and we have the tools to measure whether the services being delivered are actually making a difference, or are they just being delivered because of reasons such as uh, avoidance of risk or, or a desire to get maximum treatment or, or whatever, you know, desire to make profit. So we have to, that's the driver. So in U.S. where most everything is unregulated, the, the economic model of utilization is driving the cost. Now that's demographic. We have people who are aging. We have high incidence of lifestyle diseases. We have high incidence of metabolic diseases. We have high incidence of um, 
uh, of issues that are chronic and multi-chronic. And then for that, each of those episodes, the cost of care is rising because we are expecting the highest quality care and regardless of cost. Well, the cost eventually adds up. And who pays for it? The society does. So it's a, not a simple thing. I don't think personally that I am the qualified to answer whether a single payer will actually reduce cost because we do have a semi-single payer model with Medicare, which ensures all elderly people in the United States, right? If you're yep. over 65, you belong in Medicare. Yep. You also have a very big single payer called Medicaid, which is all the poor people below federal poverty limit sure. at certain ratio. You fall in that. Yep. And then everybody in between is sort of like insurance model of commercial insurance, employer insurance. So in many ways, we have already bifurcated the country into on the left side, the poor, the, on the right side, the elderly, and in between the working population that buys insurance and insurance companies. And we, I don't see really any empirical data that the cost of Medicare is significantly lower than commercial insurance model. And again, it's all driven by utilization. So long story short, I think what we have focused on and we must focus on is aligning the availability of care to the necessity of care to the right care to the, at the right level. And then we can talk about reducing cost. Otherwise, playing with one payer writing the check or five payers writing the check is not going to drive down cost uh, and utilization overnight. Uh, but then other people who will argue that, well, but fundamentally the issue remains. We got to empower the patient and the doctor and the payer to realign their interests. So we are all marching towards getting well at the lowest cost possible. Uh, and that, I think, is the, really the answer. Not simple, but that's the answer. I have trouble, I have trouble with that uh, in that Australia's got great health care. There's no limit on, you know, if you go there with, go to the doctor with some dreadful disease, they're not going to say it's too expensive. We're not going to treat you. They will treat you. So they're getting just as much care and as they do in America. Um, and, yeah, and Australians live five years longer than Americans, and yet they pay a third of the health care costs. Something, something... What, have we just got a dreadful diet here? Or what the hell is it that makes this everything so expensive? I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not fully qualified to answer this question because many yeah. health economists are banging their head against this every day trying to figure out the driver. But to, what I can say is that we clearly, in a cost per procedure or cost per visit or a cost per prescription, America pays a lot more yeah. for the same visit, for the same service, for the same transaction as anywhere else. And it's because we, we allow capital markets to set the price yeah. uh, of these services. And in that, you're going to always have a certain degree of fixed and fixed costs and a certain degree of cost of profit making, a certain degree of R&D budget. So uh, the, the issue here is that definitely things cost more in the U.S. There is no doubt about it. And that's the, the result of a very complex ecosystem, which is a combination of government and commercial insurance, uh, which then ultimately is bearing, driving the, uh, the, uh, the payment, and the utilization is driven by people's expectations and, and the cost of care. So there is no question, facts tell us, that cost of care in U.S. for same procedure, apples to apples, is significantly higher than, than any other G20 country. 
Yeah. Uh, but it's driven by our economic model more than anything else. Right. Okay. So w- one thing I, I really like about Sol is you've issued tokens which can be used to secure efficient and transparent healthcare. Um, how does that work in practicality? The idea of tokens, I think, is fantastic and, and is going to make a huge difference to how how businesses are financed and, and how we pay for things and going to make a huge difference. How does it work with you guys? So at the very fundamental level, a token is programmable money. Yep. And if we can program the money to be intelligent and ask the question, why am I going from wallet A to wallet B? And is the right amount going from wallet A to wallet B? Meaning, is this the right service at the right reason for the right amount? We can eliminate so much of the back-end bureaucracy and administrative effort and fraud and waste and abuse and even overutilization. So the objective is very simple and elegant to describe. The token is programmable to be intelligent around the context of care. So when we pay somebody, whether the patient pays a doctor or insurance company pays a doctor or the doctor pays a specialist, whatever the payment model is, a programmable currency is fundamentally more able to detect and prevent overpayment, underpayment, um, prepayment, or, and, you know, and reconcile itself. So that's the fundamental premise behind enabling the patient to pay the doctor with token, which allows me, the, the check writer, to A, facilitate much quicker transaction between doctor and patient. Yes. Second, keeping track of what they, who paid how much whom, how much I need to pay, how much Maria needed to pay. All those things become much more transparent and auditable and reduce the friction of payment. You don't have to wait for a check to be in the mail or, or an EFT to be issued. You don't have to aggregate payments you know, twice a month and wait for your check to come in. Sure. You can do things much more real time. And then if something is wrong, there is absolute proof of what happened so you can reconcile and adjust as necessary. And also so at much less cost. And it reduces cost for everyone. Yeah. Right? Yep. Because great you idea. can avoid... Absolutely. So that's one thing. The second part of the token is that I can delegate payment. I can give my member... Let's say I'm an insurance company. Yep. And I have 1 million members, and those members are going to go get care as they should. A normal scenario is I'll go to the doctor, the doctor will send me a bill, I'll review the bill, I'll try to verify that they really deliver the service. Then the doctor, you know, uh, uh, then I send the check to them based on what I think they should have gotten paid. Then they appeal the claim because they feel I didn't pay them enough. This is a long journey, and yep. everybody's orthogonal to each other. Why don't I give the patient the token? And I say to the patient, my member, when you go see any doctor in my network, you can pay them using my token. Because I stand behind it. This right. is my token. I stand behind it. The same way as American Express stands behind their reward points. Right. Or Delta stands behind their SkyMob. Except this token is a payment token. You can give it to the doctor when you leave the office. I may have a fixed price on the token based on the fact that this is a primary care visit. So GP should charge you $75. And the token is going to be worth 75 because of the fact that you, you went to a primary care physician for a primary care visit, or I may program the token to query me and say, okay, pretty went to see the, uh, the, the doctor. This turned out to be a specialty care visit. This is the procedure code. How much should the token be worth? I can do that all real time. So my point being that we can take this very 
complicated and very inefficient and expensive way to make payments in healthcare and truly simplify it so that people will ask the question in a few years, how the heck did we do it before? Yeah. Because what we do today is just too complex, inefficient, prone to fraud, and very expensive. So it's one way to look at the token. The other way to look at the token is to reward the patient to do certain things and make the token more valuable. If you get your annual exam done, if you take your prescriptions on time, if you do your... Um, get your uh, blood sugar level under control and keep it under control. Here is what will happen in your wallet. So we can reward behavior and we can also measure uh, to some degree how the patients respond to these incentives. So, but the fundamental value here coming back to is we want to make sure that whoever is delivering care is getting paid as quickly as possible, accurately and auditable. So that's the reason why programmable money makes sense in healthcare, because of the multi-party payment model, because of the complexity of determining the right value of care and assigning the right price to care. These are not simple questions that often require multiple systems to interact. Let's not do this anymore. It's too complex and it's too inefficient. Let's bring, let's see if a programmable money can take away most of the pain, if not all of it. I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea. I just have a question. <laughs> um, you mentioned that the token has fixed cost. Now, the token supply is fixed, um, and I think the price is currently about 30 cents, right? So how's the, how's the price fixed? Isn't the price going to vary depending on availability and demand or if the that's supp- a great question. If the supply is fixed, how do you how do you do that? Yeah, it is a d- great question, and um, the the answer is a little complex, but I'll try to simplify it. Okay. Um, so the token can have two states. Uh, it can have a state when it is variable, when it can when it is actually floating in value. Yes. But there is a point in time when the token enters the care network and it achieves stable state. So once the token enters the network the entry price gets attached to the token and it's fixed. So okay. if I as an insurance company bought tokens in the market and I gave them to my members, that token is no longer variable. The moment I put those tokens in the network, those tokens are locked in price. As long as they're circulating in the network between my wallet, patient wallet, doctor wallet, pharmacy wallet, they are, it's fixed. The final redeemer, the final wallet that ultimately redeems the token is the one who is going to sell it back in the market at the current price. Now, obviously, there's a delta and there's a variation. There's a risk involved. And there are some advanced models designed around who bears the risk of that variability. But, uh, and that is the configuration of the care network, depending on if you're an insurance company or a government agency or an employer or a patient or a pharmaceutical company, uh, different parties will bear that risk and do bear that risk. But the point is, Token has a variable state, kind of like a waveform. When it hits the network, it becomes solid matter. It doesn't change. When it exits the network, it can hit the waveform again. So it's, it's that variability that allows us to program the token to behave in very unique ways. Now, you can also issue a fixed-price token, which never changes in price, ever. Right. And that's called a stable coin. You can do that. Yes. That's the second option. But more and more of our clients are more interested in the first option because it allows for them to essentially allow the member, the patient or the consumer who's hand, who has the wallet in their hand 
to be able to derive value from the token, not just within one network, which I might be sponsoring, but in any other network that you might be sponsoring or somebody else might be sponsoring. So it creates a much glo bigger global ecosystem. Uh, but if you just wanted to have a single network and not worry about anything else, you could just lock the price of the token in the network and it would never change. A great idea. We're running a bit short of time, but ha where are you intending to take SolveCare in the next couple of years? So we have a very clear vision. We want to address these very human, intractable problems that I face as a parent, that we all face for our parents or we are going to face sooner or later for ourselves in terms of the patient provider payer relationship and administrative clinical and financial coordination. So in that regard, whether we are in US or in Australia, whether we are addressing problems in developing countries or, or developed G20, those fundamental issues aren't that different surprisingly. And our vision and our goal and our plan is to bring solve care to different markets with different set of use cases on that core premise of coordination of benefits, coordination of care, coordination of payments. Regardless of who's writing the check and regardless of who's the single risk bearer, whether it's one payer or multi-payer, doesn't matter. Those issues are still the same. You still gotta get to the doctor, you still gotta make sure that you're getting the right care, you still gotta pay for it, and you still gotta make sure that there is coordination of care around your friends, family members, specialists, therapists, and so on. So we believe that our value proposition as we bring it to different continents is clearly being articulated and understood by our clients and that's showing up in our pipeline and, and interest around the world. So where we see in two years is really to have a presence in practically every major economy in the world from a, uh, from a solution perspective and then ultimately we would like to, to make sure that the company has reached a scale and, and size where we can properly serve healthcare in one way, shape or form uh, in basically every major healthcare system that exists. Pradeep, I think it is a fantastic idea. I love it. And I thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Cons particularly considering you're on the other side of the world and it's evening. I do really do appreciate that. So contact Pradeep and find out more about solve.care. Simply go to solve.care. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the 417th Bob Pritchard Straight Talking No Bullshit Business Radio Show on Voice America Business Network. And we're broadcasting today from our studio on the shores of Sydney Harbour in Australia. I'm in Australia because I gave a speech a few days ago, which went really, really well on technology and entertainment. And I am off back to Hollywood at the end of the week. So I'm actually looking forward to that. Question, is artificial intelligence getting too smart and too independent? It's not as if we're controlling it, it's controlling itself. Now, 
that's a question that's going to be asked more and more in coming years as artificial intelligence exponentially improves. It's playing a bigger role in the finance world and it's starting to become more independent and it's creating its own rules. Now, there are a lot of efficiencies inherent in letting a machine run the numbers, do the filing, you know, all that sort of stuff. But some worry that AI, anarchy, just AI that gets smarter than most people, well, AI is smarter than most people just by the very nature of it, and that could lead to economic catastrophe. See, if you watch television when there's a something happening at the stock exchange, you still see stressed out traders in suits yelling and buying and screaming orders. But an increasing amount of trading is getting done on servers. Computer-run funds make up 35% of the U.S. stock market. So people aren't involved at all. So 35% of the U.S. stock market are run by computers and AI. And 60% of institutional equity stocks and 60% of trading activity is controlled by artificial intelligence. So it's not people sitting there making decisions, it's AI. Now, sophisticated programs and AI are now starting to monitor the economy and they're moving capital around. So while most of these programs are designed to follow rules established by humans, newer programs are now writing their own strategies. So the computers are writing their own strategies and more often than not, humans can't follow them, can't follow what they're doing because they're too smart for us. So data is a big driver in determining how to move money. But some economic phenomena like the trade war or falling interest rates, they require humans to navigate them. Some hedge fund managers have raised concerns that AI might not operate under the same strict insider trading and disclosure wars that they have to. So you can have a robot telling another robot what's going to happen in the trading and that robot could be across the world and has got access and different people have got access to it. So it can manipulate the market. Other investigators have complained that the way AI chases and abandons securities can distort prices and that some algorithms have already led to flash crashes. And because it's fund managers who vote board members in and out of office, AI could start playing a role in who sits on boards and corporate governance. It's pretty scary. Like um, Elon Musk is all against AI, as you probably know, because he said they're just going to make their own rules. And damn what the, you know, their operators think. They're not worried about it. Automation in financial services has long been confined to back office roles, but robots are now making their way into banks' trading floors, completing tasks in a fraction of the time and giving traders more time to spend on other activities, like sitting in coffee shops, (laughs) So how does it work? The system scans the trade allocation emails sent by clients, outlining how they want to divide the large block of trades between different funds, 
It then processes these requests and fulfills the transfers. Now, normally this task takes a trader about 45 minutes to an hour, and yet AI can do it in just two minutes. So I don't know which is worse, frequently dumb humans or incredibly smart robots. You probably end up with the same big fucking mess at the end. So whether they're – because most humans aren't that smart, you know. So frequently dumb humans, incredibly smart robots, probably the same same answer. But I guess the good news is that the robot probably won't cheat you so it can buy a Lamborghini, which is what traders will do if they think they can get away with it. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up way too much space. Get out of the way. Let somebody who wants to succeed get past you and succeed. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can do the ordinary. You walk down the street, there's bloody millions of them. They're all really ordinary. And with ordinary comes boring so if you want to be ordinary, you're going to be boring. In the meanwhile, I hope you have a great week. I hope you continue to be successful because the alternative to success sucks. This is Bob Pritchard broadcasting today from the shores of beautiful Sydney Harbour in Australia. Back with you from LA next week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.